Um, again, as yesterday, I'm not not got one passage, but I'm going to flick through various bits of uh, the book of Ephesians. I should have said yesterday. Uh, I guess you're all pretty familiar with Ephesians anyway, but uh, it would be helpful if you read through it. Uh, it's a bit late now. <laughs> it's a bit late now, just to refresh your minds of what's what's going on, because I'm making quite a lot of assumptions. Uh, about how much you know about the structure of Ephesians, and I hope that's not invalid. Now, uh, one thing I like to do every now and again is to make things. I uh, have uh, the most incredible power tools in my garage, and it's just brilliant at working with those things, uh, being careful not to lose fingers uh, and um, other bits and pieces. Uh, just, it's, just, <coughs> it's just fantastic getting a piece of wood and uh, chopping it up and making it into something, or even just chopping it up. <laughs> now, rarely do I use a plan when I'm at work in my garage. I go in on my day off, I disappear into the garage and uh, stay there most of the day, uh, chopping and sawing and sanding, and I end up with whatever I end up with. I don't have a plan. I make many, many mistakes along the way, So if I chisel a little bit too much off, I'm very adept at making that into a feature rather than a mistake. So uh, my errors are all covered up so that what you get in the end is something that I hope is quite pleasing. But nothing like I originally intended. Now, I guess that's true for many of us in all kinds of ways. But when we think about God, God is not like that at all. God has a plan and he exercises that plan. It's a perfect plan. He makes no mistakes along the way and contrary to what some people might think, he doesn't have to correct mistakes as we go. He doesn't have to adjust his plan because things don't go quite right. His plan is perfect, absolutely perfect executed without error. And God has always had this plan. Chapter 1 and verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God has always had a plan that has been in place since before the foundation of the world. Now, when did the world begin? Well, if you're a scientist, well, Big Bang, 13.7 billion years ago, if you buy that. Uh, but for God, way before that, way before that, before even there was time, God had his plan. He knew how it would all play out. And he never will or has been caught uh, on the back foot. Now, this does lead us into a rather deep theological debate, which you can ask uh, Martin about afterwards. (laughs) And um, I I hesitate to stray into this uh, field when there's some good theologians uh, out listening. The the lapsarianism debate, whether you are infralapsarian or supralapsarian, I'm sure you all remember discussing that at a theological college. Uh, Briefly, uh, lapse means sin, Infra means after, supra means before, effectively. So the point is uh, this, did God plan to save the world after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? Was it a response to the fall? 
or did God plan before? And uh, the whole thing was in his plan, the fall and redemption. Each of those views has its problems. I'm drawn to a superlapsarian view, but I'm aware that that's probably not um, the most common. And the most di- biggest difficulty with the superlapsarian view, which is that God had it planned right from the very earliest before time, is that it's very difficult not to make God the author of evil uh, because of the fall in the garden. But you can have endless debates on it in a sense. It doesn't really matter. Martin will sort it out for you. Ask him afterwards. So if God had this great plan from before the foundation of the world, why did God do it? Why would God create a world that he knew would fall and get broken and destroyed? I wouldn't spend a long time making something that's just going to be thrown on the fire to be burned. Why would God do it? Why would God make a world that he knew would turn its back on him? He knew uh, would bring pain and heartache to his heart and to the hearts of his people. And ultimately, why make a world where you know your son is going to be crucified by it and through it? Now, we don't often ask that question, I've often heard people say, well, we can't know the answer to that. That's in the mind of God and uh, that's all his plans. We can never know. But let me tell you, we can know because Ephesians tells us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, just one example, says this. Uh, So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. According to Ephesians, that is the fundamental reason why God had his plan, why he made the world, why he went through all he has gone through. It is to display his glory. So uh, what is that plan? Chapter 1, again, and uh, verse 7, we read this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, one purpose of God's plan is to make known the mystery. That's a a very interesting word. It's a, a common Bible word and it doesn't necessarily mean what we immediately think it means. I had a, a very good friend when I was at Theological College. I think he's retired now. Well, I'm certainly he's retired now. And um, he told me that uh, when he went on his Ackham selection conference, as they were in those days, back uh, many years ago, it was called Ackham. It had lots of names, but it was called Ackham then. He, he really was quite naive, didn't know anything really about the Church of England. But uh, he was a, a, an out-and-out evangelist. And... He was being encouraged to go into ministry, so he went off on this selection conference. Uh, 
And he was in one of his interviews, and the interviewer said to him, now, um, can you tell me what you understand about the sacraments? A fair question for Church of England, selection conference. And my friend said, oh, I don't know much about that. It's all a bit of a mystery to me. And um, they thought that was fantastic. (laughs) Oh, yes, it's a mystery. He understands, it's a mystery. And and he got got through with flying colours. I think even to this day, he's no idea what he said. (laughs) That's not what the Bible means when it talks about a mystery. People talk a lot about mystery today. It's something kind of ethereal that we can't quite grasp. Well, according to the New Testament... God's mystery has been revealed. We know what it is. Uh, Chapter 3 and uh, verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. The mystery made known to Paul by revelation. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wants to make it pretty clear there, doesn't he, that the mystery has now been revealed. We know what it is. To pick up some of the language from last night, in Act 1 of the drama, the Old Testament... The mystery was what we would think of as a mystery. It was all a kind of a riddle. In Act 2 of the drama, along comes Christ, death and resurrection. The apostles enlightened by the Spirit and everything clicks into place. This is what the mystery is. That God is going to save his people and unite the irreconcilable. It's a huge cosmic plan. And uh, in, in the kind of Ephesian terms, there are the heavenly beings looking on as the drama plays out and their minds are completely blown when they see, that's how God's going to do it. I never thought he could, but look, he's done it. And the mystery is revealed now. And we have a mystery to proclaim And uh, one way we do that is given in chapter 5 and verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What's Paul talking about there? Ephesians 5, he's talking about marriage and relationships between men and women. Proclaim the mystery of Christ. This is one of the most fundamental reasons why I cannot theologically be anything other than a complementarian. Because the difference, the equality and the difference between men and women in a marriage relationship proclaims the relationship between Christ and his church. And according to 1 Corinthians 11, it proclaims the relationship between Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, which also comes from Genesis 2. I cannot see it any other way. 
To lose the complementarian theology is to lose a major plank in the declaration of God's mystery in the world. The mystery is modelled. And uh, then according to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, the mystery is proclaimed. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It's the mystery again. So through God's plan in his creation, the mystery is made known. And one plank in that mystery is the uniting of all things. Chapter 1 and verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We'll come back to that a little bit more tomorrow, but just as a little kind of tantalising appetiser, just notice what Paul says there, in case you missed it, that Christ was given by God as a gift to the church. That's interesting, isn't it? Very interesting language. Uh, He is a gift to his church. Church. So God is to unite all things in Christ, to bring all things together, to reconcile the irreconcilable, to do amazing things by his plan. Chapter 2 and verse uh, 11, we read this. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Buried not very far beneath the surface of the language here is the model of the temple. Uh, You know this from Ephesians, the wall of hostility broken down by the blood of Christ, the tearing of the temple in two, the opening of the way, the uniting of all things in Christ. That's what God is doing. Uh, Chapter 3. And verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is God's amazing cosmic plan. So what's the purpose? The purpose is to bring glory to God. 
uh, I was uh, checking out that wonderful, I was just saying this to somebody uh, yesterday, that wonderful Anglican document, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith. You do need to remind Presbyterians that it is an Anglican document, even though the Church of England uh, never adopted it, has never adopted it. It was written by Anglicans, and it's great. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question seven. You all know it well, I'm sure. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. For his own glory. The purpose of creation then is for the glory of God. And as we work to that end, God has given us a provision as his people, to bring this about. Provision to live for him. Chapter 4 and verse 7, I'm going to stray into one of the most controversial parts of Ephesians here, but um, hopefully we'll get through it uh, without incident. Uh, Chapter 4 and verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who ascended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might might fill all things. There's that filling language again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He's equipped his church. He's given provision to his church. Now, uh, just in case you missed the controversial bit, um, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men, is, uh, as far as we can all uh, judge reading the Bible, a misquotation. Because uh, in Psalm 68, I believe it is, it says, he ascended on high and received gifts from men. I'm not going to go into that. Read the commentaries. There are answers. The best answer comes from Golden Mouth himself, the greatest preacher of all time, St. Chrysostom. He said, well, giving and receiving, they're the same thing really, aren't they? <laughs> That's the best. That is the best. So, sorted. Absolutely sorted. God gives gifts to his people to display his glory. Not for our benefit or our uh, pleasure and enjoyment, but for his glory. Uh, And he gives prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to the church. Chapter 2 and verse uh, 19, we read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So apostles and prophets are foundational, you know this. Apostles and prophets foundational and the other gifts mentioned in chapter 4 are ongoing. But God has given these gifts to his church. Apostles and prophets gave us God's word, the Bible. So to build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets is to be firmly rooted in God's word, the scriptures. And that's why I'm sure all of us are totally sold out on that. 
We preach God's word, not our own view, not our own opinion. We preach the apostles and prophets, the foundation. And then uh, chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God. I don't need to read it, you know it well. The armour of God for the battle. That is the provision. God has given us armour. And boy, in ministry, don't we often feel like we need a bit of armour? The things that are levelled at us and thrown at us. Well, God has given us that armour. You can read what the armour is. I uh, once knew a guy in ministry who said he prayed this prayer every morning before going out to do ministry. He put on his armour every morning, praying through this Ephesians 6, so that he'd be ready to face the battle. So there's a purpose, there's a, a provision and at the end of all this, we need to ask finally, I've gone, I think I've gone over time, but, um, well, we need to look at this. Uh, your place, there's a place for us. The plan, God's plan, involves you. You've been chosen by him to be holy and blameless, adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for his glory. Yes, it is about you. God has done this for me. So the plan involves you, but because we're all human, we can sometimes think it's all because of me. It's not all about you. In fact, it's not really about you at all. It's about the glory of God. It's about declaring the wisdom of God. We'll be thinking a bit more about that uh, tomorrow. It's about bringing unity to a divided universe. We've been redeemed. We were dead, but now we're alive, says Paul. Here, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 uh, and verse 13. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. <laughs> Where? Where? Do you feel like you're seated in the heavenly places? Well, you are, because God has done that for you. And all of God's plan comes together and is revealed in the work of Christ. He is the one whom we proclaim for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you again for the truth and power of your word. Thank you for your great plan for your creation. Help us to play our part, that your name will be glorified in heaven and on earth. That all would see that you are God and that Jesus Christ is Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.